Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom. Like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Broadstairs Consulting believes that crisis isn't an if, it's a when. And although we are unafraid of crisis, we've never known one to be resolved in a single day. However long the day or night that gave rise to it in the first place, there's always something we can learn. Tune in now to The Longest Day, a short and snappy weekly crisis podcast where we interview leaders about crises emerging on their watch. New episodes released every Thursday. This podcast is a Royfield Brown production. Find others on iTunes. All right. Ladies and gentlemen, please remain standing for the singing of our national anthem. Brexit means Brexit. My administration has accomplished more than almost any administration in the history of our country. Before we start with the show, I've got a brand new podcast recommendation for you. It's not something which I normally do on the show, but this podcast is so good, I thought, mm, let's tell you all about it. Now, the podcast is called Don't Drink the Milk. Now, if you like your history uh, with a good dose of travel, with a little bit of pop culture and controversy, you should definitely check it out. This show explores the curious backstories of really familiar things like beer, cancer culture and passports and how they've changed as they've moved throughout time and around the world. Sometimes by force, occasionally by chance, or even by choice. Now, give it a listen. Quite simply search for Don't Drink the Milk wherever you get your podcasts. Now on with our scheduled programming. Hi, hello and welcome. I'm Royful Brown and this is Mid-Atlantic, the podcast where we try and bridge the conversation between the US and the UK by examining the political pulse on both sides of the Atlantic. I'm your host, as I said, Royful Brown, and today I'm in Oakland. And of course, the sun is out, the sky is blue. Actually, it's a little bit nippy, as we'd say in the UK. Today, I'm joined on the show by our esteemed panel members. We have Cora Bernard in Manchester in the UK, Logan Phillips in DC, Michael Donoghue, he's in Los Angeles, and we have Aaron Fisher, who's also in the Bay Area. If I lean out of my window and shout, you could probably hear me. Today, we're going to dissect the Democratic Party's sweeping victories in uh, this week's elections. Let's try and unpack the Democratic Party's remarkable success. It was a series of victories uh, that have sent ripples through the political landscape and upturned some accepted thinking. 
as we set the stage for the upcoming 2024 election race. From the bluegrass hills of Kentucky to the busty streets of Ohio and taken in Virginia and Pennsylvania, we saw the Democrats clinch uh, crucial wins in what many are calling a clear referendum on key issues. But what were these key issues and what can we make for the relative minimal role that President Joe Biden played in the campaign trail? Was this uh, a smart strategic decision by Democratic candidates to focus on local issues? We're going to begin with the election results across the country and what they could mean for 2024. Kentucky's Democratic governor won a closely watched race in a heavily Republican state. And Ohio possibly delivering a message with national implications, approving a measure protecting abortion rights. Mary Bruce is in Columbus, Ohio, with the latest on that and the key races. Good morning, Mary. Good morning, Robin. Yeah, this was a huge night for Democrats, scoring big wins in several races, proving the political potency of the fight for abortion and giving the party a big boost with the presidential election now just a year away. Overnight, Democrats on a winning streak, scoring victories in Ohio, Kentucky and Virginia, powered by support for abortion rights. In Ohio, voters enshrining a right to abortion access in the state's constitution. It's the seventh straight victory for abortion rights in a state referendum since the Supreme Court overturned Roe v. Wade last year. Abortion access is the law of the land in Ohio. The 14-point win in the red-leaning state, a strong sign for Democrats that abortion is the issue energizing the party's base. How important is the issue of abortion? Uh... I think it's number one on the ballot right now. Women's rights are under attack. The big question now, will this momentum translate to an unpopular President Biden? In deep red Kentucky, Trump-backed candidate Republican Daniel Cameron tried to take down Democratic Governor Andy Beshear by linking him to Biden. But it didn't work. Thank you, Kentucky! We should start with you, Logan. The accepted wisdom was that the Democrats were going to have a testing night. Why was the underpolling of Democratic voters? What says you, sir? Yeah, we're in an interesting place with uh, Joe Biden compared to other presidents. His approval rating has been lower than most, but he doesn't seem to animate the people that dislike him to vote that much, which is a real contrast, right? Because in these midterms and these off-year elections, the other side has been fuming at the mouth, just the voters themselves and are just ready to turn out a storm. Plus, the independents tend to go to the other party. And while the turnout wasn't very good for the GOP and Democrats in a lot of these races across the country, just like in 2022, overperformed in winning the persuasion battle. So this wasn't like a 2018 blue wave or anything like that, but it was way above what you would expect for the party in power, much like 2022. So Democrats, popular governor in Kentucky, were able to win an election, win re-election. In Mississippi, A guy that my forecast said should have won by about eight is going to end up winning by about four and a half, which this is one of the reddest states in the nation where a neutral candidate versus neutral candidate win by 30. And it goes to show that for Democrats, a lot of their core issues are really motivating voters. And for the GOP, they're losing voters on issues like especially abortion, but on social issues in general. And so Republicans have gotten in their own way. And I think part of the problem here, though it's not all of the problem, is that the incentives for a Republican to win a primary are literally the exact opposite to win a general election. Yes, these things often don't go together, but they're not usually so diametrically opposed. Between that and the stronghold Donald Trump has and Donald Trump's resistance to any criticism of his way of doing things, the GOP, at least for the moment, has been ahistorical in that they cannot 
respond to the negatives or the things voters don't like about them and shift because the ones who do are no longer going to be nominees anymore. Normally, parties adjust to the electorate very well in America. It's why we have such a competitive system. You have answered about the next 10 of my talking points. So that so majestic was your sweep there. But Aram, let's see if you can pick up the cudgels and, and maybe dive a little bit deeper into some of the issues which so animated and got out that democratic vote. Is abortion still a central issue and basically the touchstone for democratic candidates to wheel out the vote? It's clear that reproductive freedom is an issue that favors Dems by a lot. We've seen referenda in places like Kansas, in California, in Ohio, other places as well. And every single time we see the pro-choice side of the vote win and win by a lot. Um, Over 10 points in Ohio just the other day here. There's no doubt that this is an issue that's animating voters. There's no question. It's clear that it's an economic issue that really impacts people. It's clear that it's a moral issue that really impacts people. And it is turning out people of many different stripes to go out and vote, whether it's young people who are concerned about choosing when and where they're going to have a child, whether it's uh, older women who never thought they'd live through a period where the uh, right to an abortion is questioned, or other people who just care about this issue. So it's clear that it's a massive winner for Democrats and one that Republicans are frankly tying themselves up in knots trying to find some way to maintain their position while softening it enough to win. Most notably in the in this debate last night, the Republican presidential debate and also an earlier one, Nikki Haley has tried to find has tried to establish some kind of mid midpoint, some kind of third way position on abortion access, saying, oh, we should just leave it up to the states. And while I think it's completely immoral and something I want nothing to do with, if other states vote the way they want to vote, then so be it. I don't think that's ever going to carry much water with the electorate. I think that's wishful thinking and the the votes that we've seen certainly back up my position. Logan, can you give us any sense of any level of consistency with the polls as to how much the Democrats being on the right side of the issue of abortion is maybe adding to their election success? I don't have a clear and easy number for you there, but I can tell you it's very significant. And it's abortion referendums are winning in states like Kansas, and they're becoming central pillars of issues in very red states like Kentucky. Off the cuff, I think Donald Trump won Kentucky by 30 points. Now, to be clear, this is a state that is a bit like a reverse Massachusetts. Massachusetts has lots of Republican governors. Charlie Baker, very popular. Mitt Romney, very popular. Vermont is another one of those. One of the most popular governors in the country is Republican. It's the bluest state in the nation. So Kentucky is the reverse, though they will never vote for a, Repub- a Democrat senator any time in the near future, to put it mildly. It is a state that is willing to cross party lines for governor and like someone that's moderate and seems competent. That's their thing. But it's still these types of things are happening a lot less in the country, especially in the South. And so for Bashir to be able to win on that being one of his like three central pillars of his campaign. Wow, that's a sea change. That certainly wouldn't have happened before uh, Roe v. Wade was overturned. So let's go to President Biden's role in, in all of this era, if any at all. And then does this really point to what might happen in 2024? First thing is these were very much local elections. And you have to look at them individually. And what happens in any one of these states isn't necessarily indicative of what's going to happen 
other places. I think that there are definitely truths that we can take out of it, right? For example, this is yet another referendum on abortion access that went to the pro-choice side of the argument. That we can definitely extrapolate. But when we look at, say, a state like Mississippi, which is an outlier in so many ways, uh, one of it just it's not even worth going into how many ways Mississippi is different than other states. It's really hard to extrapolate from that, a state that isn't a swing state in the presidential election, to what's going to happen in the presidential election. So I would definitely say we need to put these victories and losses in context. In terms of the president's role, I don't think that there was much of a role, and I don't think that's unusual either. I think that in off-year elections, that tends to be the case, off-year elections being the ones that happen in odd years, as opposed to the midterm year or the presidential year. And I think if there's something that parties should take from this, it's for Democrats that they have the ability to continue their very long win streak. It's been good times for Democrats in most of the elections, even the ones where they haven't necessarily done as well, they've overperformed. And for Republicans, they really need to try to figure out how they can keep their coalition together and expand it at the same time. And that's a problem that no one's figured out how to do. Chris Christie has a theory. He's polling in the low single digits for the Republican nomination. Nikki Haley, as I mentioned before, was, is trying to find some sort of middle ground position that's functional. Uh, and Donald Trump and DeSantis are doubling down on, on MAGA. And Vivek is, I don't know, running a PR campaign. So they need to figure someone over there, whether it's at the RNC or something, if they want to start winning again, they're going to have to figure out a different approach. And it seems like they're pretty hell-bent on sticking with the same message and strategy over and over again. And it doesn't seem to be working. I'd say the one other major note that I would put out here is one, or there's two actually. One, the young people are still turning out. At least it seems that way. It's a little bit early. We need to take a little bit of time to see, let the people like Logan crunch the numbers and report back. That said, it seems like the young people are still turning out and motivated at a generational high. It's been a long time since young people have been this activated. And I think that the... um the, the second thing is that this is the first election cycle that's really post-pandemic. And one of the dynamics over the last three years has been that Republicans were willing to go knock doors and Democrats weren't. And also Republican voters were willing to open the door when someone knocked on their door and Democratic voters weren't. The Democratic Party at its various levels and the different institutions have been saying for a while, oh, just you wait until we can knock on doors. And it seems that there is some impact there that's meaningful that could carry over into 2024 and decide that election potentially both presidential level and below. Logan, there's such a sweep of victories, whether it is Turkey governor's races, which you hinted at, Pennsylvania Supreme Court, Virginia State House, it goes on and on. Which one of the victories this week for you was the most significant or the most surprising? I don't have the specific numbers for this, but I would say the one that's the most significant going to be, I'm cheating a little bit, but it's two places because they're types of elections I think are more useful. Virginia and New Jersey, Democrats did really well. Okay. It's New Jersey. I know on the cuff, doesn't sound surprising. That's a very blue state, but they just overperformed a lot, especially compared to 2021, um, which wasn't such a great year for Dems. And I think when the party's consistently overshooting the marks of what you'd expect, 
that's a good sign because with the governor race in Virginia, and I'm not Virginia, with the governor race in Kentucky and Mississippi, we're just talking about one election that can have unique dynamics that can make it different than others. So you're often going to be better off by looking at a huge number of these races. And Democrats did about three points better than the polls said they should in those races. We're still counting the numbers, but that's about what it looks like. Similar in some of these races, like in Pennsylvania Supreme Court, where they won it by six. I think they should feel good about that. I will also say one one thing, I agree with almost everything you said. I just think it's an interesting dimension to add to it is that the Republican Party really tried to link Joe Biden to Bashir and the same thing to Presley, Elvis's cousin, who is the Democratic candidate in Mississippi. It was a stretch in Mississippi and Kentucky. Biden has been with Bashir at events, especially for an infrastructure bill, building a new bridge with McConnell also. But so there were pictures they could use there as a narrative they could use. It didn't work. It didn't work. And that's with Biden having, I don't know off the cuff, but it, let's just say very low approval ratings in Kentucky, a deeply red state that Biden doesn't appear to freak people out enough, even if his numbers aren't great. And that is an interesting dynamic because while Biden is now losing in the polls in the Electoral College against Trump head, head Trump is such a negative motivator for Dems, including young Dems who have soured on Biden to a degree that I could see a dynamic where people are just a little lower on Trump and the energy is not as much there. He'll get some of his base out, but he's turning out Democrats a lot and the negative campaigning isn't working as well for Republicans of Biden. That's a pathway to victory for them. It's it's funny because you rarely see such extreme signs happening all at the same time for both parties. You have the slew of bad polls in the New York Times for Democrats. You have all these elections for Democrats. I think I screwed it up. Slew of bad polling for Democrats in the New York Times. And you have all these good elections for Democrats happening here. That's not even talking about the special elections where According to my data, it reflects an environment where Democrats are winning the popular vote by 12%, like massive landslide level. I'm not saying that's at all what's going to happen in 2024, but they're just consistently winning election after election. We're doing better than they should, which I think does mean something. Uh, I think you got to take both the polling and that into account when you're trying to figure out what's going to happen in 2024. Just whilst I have you here, because uh, and you might have touched on this before, your very first answer was all-encompassing that um, you could well have actually touched on this. But it appears to the casual observer looking at opinion polls that the Dems are being underweighted. And that could well be because young people, A, don't have regular phones, and then B, they don't pick up those phones. Is that one of the key reasons why polling expectations of the Democrats always seems to be much better come polling day? So that's since 2021. Yeah, especially since Dobbs. I think that's a viable theory. It's hard to tell these things about what specifically the pollsters did wrong to underrate them. My biggest read is the pollsters had one of the worst misses they've had in 2016. And then they probably had their worst miss in history, if not since Truman, who was president in the 1940s. And that was underestimating the GOP. So I think it creates a very powerful economic incentive for pollsters who as an industry are screwed if that happens again. They took a lot of hits. There's, I've noticed a lot less newspapers hiring some of these pollsters now. And that's going to get a lot worse if it happens again, especially as these pollster media outlets don't want to be seen as having a liberal bias. Pollsters are better off. They'd rather not miss at all. But if they're going to miss, I think they'd rather miss to the left. They always have to take risk, right? Capitalism creates incentives. I think that's the incentive you're seeing. Now, look, maybe I'll be proven wrong in 2024. will just be another miss. And there's something about Trump being on the ballot and who he's able to bring out that those pollsters are unable to fully track. We'll see. But I think you got a viable case for both. You've had medium, but genuine and consistent polling misses against Dems since Roe. And you had historic polling misses the other way a little longer ago for two straight presidential elections. So I think coming in here, people are responding to polls less. 
they try to get young voters by using online polls, and that's a, a lot of pollsters mix it. But they're responding. I don't know the exact number, but I think it's at 10% of the rate they were doing back in 2012, like the amount of voters they go actually say yes to a phone call. And so that makes their job so much harder. This industry is so much harder for them now. So the misses, we should all just assume there's going to be more misses. They're still useful, but they're not going to be perfect. That's for sure. Aram, last question to you. One of the places where the Democrats didn't score a victory was actually Mississippi, despite turning a lot of their election firepower there. What does this tell us about potentially 2024? Is this to say that the Democrats should really just go for those purple states and don't put so much effort into trying to unseat Republican incumbents in the reddest of red states? Is this a lesson that the Democratic Party should learn in terms of a return on its electoral investment? In politics, you famously get no power for being in second place. That's always the most important thing, right? Democrats won zero gubernatorial power in Mississippi. That said, losing by five points in a state that red is a moral victory that does suggest a future. The South in particular has seen a lot of political shifts. You look at a state like Virginia, which used to be much redder and is now much bluer. Um, North Carolina has been wobbling, is teetering um, in one direction or the other. It's not entirely clear which way it's going in the future. You've seen races in South Carolina that were a little closer than one might expect. And uh, Mississippi is, I think, the latest to show that these states in the South are maybe not as permanently red as they seemed 15 years ago. I think that's really to the great credit, not necessarily as much to the Democratic Party as some organizations that have really focused on funding work in the South. I would point to Black Voters Matter Fund. For those outside of the states, the South is a much higher percentage of Black Americans than any other part of the country. Mississippi, I think, is somewhere in the 20s or 30s in terms of percentage. And just in general, the Southern states have a much higher Black population and and Black people generally in America vote 90% plus for Democrats. So there, there are opportunities there. And a lot of it has to do with the population diversifying and also people moving into those states and changing the who's actually in the electorate. I think it's also instructive to look at a place like Kentucky. And I bring that up because both of these states have a lot of rural voters. And rural voters had been not universally ignored by Democrats, but in a lot of places there was this idea, oh, it's too red to win. And a lot of pink places, light red places, became crimson. And that's actually made it a lot harder for Democrats to win in a number of states. Ohio is a really good example of this. And there there are opportunities. There's real pain in rural communities in America. And if you go and address them, places Democrats have given up or had given up on on places that will generally vote for Republicans. And they looked at these light red or even half red places that were out of reach and said, oh, they're not worth any time. And what happened was a lot of those places became very red because only Republicans were addressing the concerns of the people there. That said, there is very real pain. And Democrats, to their credit, have actually done a lot to address that pain. Most notably, the broadband provisions of the infrastructure bill are going to bring places into the modern economy that have been suffering horrendously 
after the, the local economies that have been rooted in extraction, things like coal mining or agriculture have started to fail. So if you think of some of these communities, say in Appalachian, Kentucky, you'll, you'll look at those particular parts of Kentucky and see that they have swung very hard from the Republicans to the Democrats because they have real pain. And when you have a governor like Bashir who expands Medicaid and all of a sudden you have healthcare and you didn't have healthcare before, you're going to vote for that guy again. When you have someone who wasn't hooked up to the modern economy because they couldn't connect to the internet and now they can, they're going to remember that because that's economic opportunity that's going to matter to them and so much more. So I think that there is definitely uh, a strategy for Democrats to do better in states like that, that emerged in this election even further. And I think it's a warning sign for Republicans who want to try to stop that momentum. Let's turn our Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news... All right, I'll do. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom. Like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Tension. Now to how the conflict in Gaza is affecting domestic politics, both in the US and the UK. This week has seen the death toll in Gaza rise to over 10,000 lives. Israel has announced that it will initiate daily four-hour humanitarian pauses. This move comes amid international calls, including those from uh, the UN Secretary General and President Macron of France for a de-escalation of hostilities. Moreover, there is now growing criticism on the way that Israel is prosecuting its war on Hamas, specifically coming from left-leaning voices in the US and in the UK. Whilst international voices throughout the world are now starting to label Israel's bombing of Gaza as disproportionate, given the significant loss of civilian lives and civilian infrastructure in Gaza. I'm going to come to you, Mike. President Biden seems to be putting pressure on on the Israelis because there seems to be some level of a public opinion which is changing. How is the US media playing out the humanitarian crisis in Gaza? Is this a case of, and 10% of Gaza has now been flattened, 
that this is now turning the US public opinion, maybe not necessarily against Israel, but most definitely for some level of um, a ceasefire or a pause. Yeah, I think the media coverage has mirrored, and Logan can probably speak to this better than I can, general American attitudes towards Israel and Hamas or Israel and Palestine. The initial media coverage was extremely pro-Israeli. And I think at a certain point, the excuses made for why they were just carpet bombing didn't really pass the smell test anymore. And especially as more and more video came out, some of the Americans, American Palestinians who were there, their stories were being told. And I think we're starting to, to see counter-narrative gaining more inches of, I guess that's an antiquated term, gaining more space on the website and starting to balance out the two components. So a lot of the questions now are not just how long is it going to take Israel to wipe Hamas off the map? Why is Israel the only country in the world that seems to get this kind of pass from us in terms of unadulterated aggression? So I I think it's shifting. I think it's going to continue to shift. Biden took a lot of heat, I think, early on from the far left because he wasn't aggressive on the issue. And I don't know that his efforts are going to be of any great help to him in recovering those people unless there's something that's very clearly tied to him. If he does something that clearly he can say, this is my stamp on pushing for a two-state solution, uh, I think that's those people are probably gone. Logan, before we come to Corey, who's going to tell us what's been happening in UK politics, this is a real live issue in the dynamics of UK politics. Can you maybe give us some polling data in terms of where the US stands with support for Israel and or support for some level of a pause? And then if we can maybe contrast that with uh, some UK data. Yeah, I think that America's views on this are nuanced. Americans are more and more saying they're upset about, they're concerned about the casualties. 40% of Americans, which is the plurality of the three options they were given, said that they think Israel's response has been too extreme in their counterattack. And that's 58% of Democrats in particular. And you do see some issues with Biden that it's hard to say which is this, which is something else. Biden is underperforming with young voters and young voters of color, some of them, when they're given an option to Kennedy or Cornel West, will go for him or say they're just not sure they're going to vote right now, um, when that's a group that overwhelmingly goes for them. So there does appear to be some pain here. Now, when it comes to support for humanitarian pause, I looked, I can't give you a good answer. And the reason I can't give you an answer is that every single pollster that I found that has asked this question has an agenda, and the way they frame it has gotten radically different results to a level I actually haven't, probably as much as I've seen. I'll give you an example. So Rasmussen, a conservative pollster, asked the question, Do you support Netanyahu's statement that a ceasefire is tantamount to surrendering to Hamas and terrorism? In that case, 68% said they did and opposed a ceasefire. Data for Progress, a more liberal pollster group, asked people if they agree that the U.S. should call for a ceasefire on the de-escalation of violence in Gaza, and it should leverage as close diplomatic with Israel to protect further violence against civilians. In that case, then 66% of Americans supported it, which kind of shows how Americans are on this, right? They like Israel, they still want to support it, but they don't like the casualty rate. And so that's leaving them pretty conflicted right now. Which honestly, I think is where the Biden administration is too. They were pretty gung ho supportive of Israel in public all the time. They're still pretty supportive in public, but behind closed doors, in ways that are constantly leaking, it's clear that they're putting a lot more pressure on doing humanitarian pauses and trying to reduce the casualty rate and making clear there's certain options of how this ends, like occupying Gaza and worst of all, ethnic cleansing. 
that they view as completely unacceptable. Well, first of all, let me explain what we've seen over the last few weekends. We've seen now tens of thousands of people take to the streets following the massacre of Jewish people, the single largest loss of Jewish life since the Holocaust, chanting for the erasure of Israel from the map. To my mind, there's only one way to describe those marches. They are hate marches. Now, secondly, the police and the crime, uh, the, the Crown Prosecution Service are operationally independent. So it's not for me to provide a running commentary on the specific legal decisions that they are making in real time on the ground. But what the police have made clear is that they are concerned that there's a large number of bad actors who are deliberately operating beneath the criminal threshold in a way which you or I or the vast majority of British people would consider to be utterly odious. Now, we keep our laws under review, and if there is a need to change the law, just as we did in relation to Just Stop Oil protests last year, I will not hesitate to act. I have made my views clear. These are hate marches, and the police must take a zero-tolerance approach to anti-Semitism. Corey, the issue of a ceasefire, a pause, humanitarian aid, the disproportionate response, the reflexive support for the state of Israel is a real live issue in British politics. Rishi Sunak has said that a major pro-Palestinian march should go ahead on Armistice Day, which is, of course, on Sunday. Why has that become such a hot topic in British politics? It's become a hot topic because Swala Brahman wants to be the leader of the Conservative Party. Yeah, I know that sounded really trite, but that's really what it is. About six days ago, a new round of the culture wars started. And it started with a few people on the right, GB News particularly, Nigel Farage, some other people, and then picked up almost the next day by Swala Braverman, the Home Secretary. These twin ideas of disrespect, it, it, it's disrespectful to march on Saturday, which is the 11th, on, on Armistice Day, twinned with the idea that it's going to be violent. Now, beyond literally a handful of arrests over the past three weekends where the protests have happened. They've been largely peaceful. There have been incidences where people have worn really offensive things on shirts, referencing and glorifying Hamas. But again, that's literally two or three people out of 100,000 or more, if you believe the organisers, they say it's 200 people marching in these protests. So in my opinion, it's wholly manufactured. It's wholly manufactured because people simply just, a mixture of people who they the culture wars is their day job and this is just the latest iteration of it they can plant themselves on one side they can pretend to be friends of israel friends of jewish people just to again as another weapon for this round of the war the culture wars and then you've got people who are more genuinely all pro-israel pro-israeli government in terms of what they're doing in the, the action that they're taking in, in gaza using it that as an excuse to say to stop the protests because these the opposition to these protests didn't start this week around Armistice State. The same voices have opposed the protests, have opposed the marches from the beginning. So again, that tells me again that they're not honest actors. They're just using the they're just using Armistice Day. Highly emotive day. Remember it. Remember Sunday is on the twelfth, but Armistice Day being the eleventh the eleventh, a very emotive day. And they're just using that as a way of further being against the, the protest. And it has been mostly amplified by Swala government. I would have thought that if ever there was a more apt day for a march about peace, 
it is Armistice Day. <laughs> Armistice Day is all about peace. But anyway, let's just quickly pause there. Mike, Swella Braverman, the Home Secretary, is under scrutiny specifically because she wrote an article which accused the Metropolitan Police of bias. Now, this has potentially breached the ministerial code and maybe Sunak is actually going to sack her. But could you tell us quickly, briefly, why this has caused such a furore in terms of her accusing the police in London of bias around this march? Oh, I don't even know if that's the most controversial part of her opt-out. Oh, well, mm-hmm. listen, listen, you, you start with the most controversial. We're in your hands. You go for it. Well, she, she makes it pretty clear that as far as she's concerned, any pro-Palestinian march is by definition a hate march and hate speech. And, and you get into some really ugly connotations when you start just blanket labeling people like that. Obviously, the police uh, comment is also controversial, but she's she came out swinging. And I think just to reinforce, I know you said short, Corey's, Corey was right on the mark. And I think you can liken it to the 1960s here in the States with Nixon and his law and order campaign, right? Where it was under the guise of law and order, but it was really, let's keep black people down. And I think the same thing here, Suella knows clearly that Muslims in the UK overwhelmingly vote labor. And by taking this sort of anti-Palestinian, anti-Muslim stance, she's not going to lose any of the votes and maybe she'll pick up some of those UKIP guys that are still floating out there. So from her perspective, she knows she's going to get fired. She wants to get fired to distance herself from the biggest Tory loss in the last 80 years. It's going to happen next year. And she'll wait and then come back strong and say, look, I was always, I always was telling you this and Rishi was horrible and it's time to get this country back on track. Corey, the Labour Party is suffering through this as well. This isn't just the top line, the front bench, sorry, of the Conservative Party. Keir Starmer, the leader of the Labour Party, has some 65 Labour MPs, including French benches, who support a ceasefire in Gaza. Why have so many Labour MPs been so disappointed with his comments over the Israeli-Hamas conflict? I guess there are a number of reasons. Labour, historically, you would guess, based on their historic positions, that they would be much more in favour of ceasefire, negotiated solution, peace talks, etc., etc. But I think then there's also the fact that you've had, um, there have been several amount of Labour councillors up and down the country who have resigned due to Keir Starmer's very transigent approach to essentially sticking by the line he's held since the beginning, that total opposition to a ceasefire, and only recently agreeing with this humanitarian pause thing, but also this infamous interview he had a couple of weeks ago during the Labour Party conference, where he seemed to endorse the policy of the Israeli government to stop all food, medicines, and fuel going into Gaza. And also, as Mike said, in terms of voters... Most Muslim vote. Most Muslim voters in the UK vote for vote Labour. So they, as I said, they, they've lost councillors. They've also lost. They've lost so many councillors in certain places that they've actually lost control of certain councils. And so that's how bad it's gone. And now, just two days ago, they've lost their first from Ben MP who resigned. 
And the reason Imran Hussain, he was the shadow minister for the New Deal or something along those lines. And he he resigned because he won, there was an early day motion in the Commons on Wednesday, yesterday, calling for a ceasefire. And he was told if he's signing it, which he intended to, he would be fired because that isn't the policy of the Labour front bench team. So he resigned. So they've lost a front bench uh, shadow minister. They've lost councillors up and down the country. There have been multiple open letters signed. I saw one just two days ago from, I think, Burnley Council. We had about 30 councillors putting their name to this. So there's a massive amount of internal revulsion and hesitate, yeah, rebellion against the leadership up and down the country from within the party. And these are the people, these are people, councillors, local party activists who they are going to need to actually win the next election. Because, as I've said a few times on this podcast before, I, I don't think it's a shoe in they still need to do a lot of work. They've got big ground games that they obviously need to make sure that they can get out for the next election. And losing this kind of support internally is understandably very frightening for MPs who want to be in government perhaps this time next year. Uh, but a number of reasons. Top reason why, you know, to answer your question, is that they're scared of what it's doing to the party internally. You're not seeing this division in the, on the Conservative side, but you are seeing it very markedly on, on the Labour side. You are right. The division on, on the on the conservative side seems to be around the bellicose messaging of Suella Braverman, who, as you rightly say, is so very clearly thinking about the next Tory leadership election, and she wants to get sacked so she can be in the wilderness whilst the Conservative Party goes through at least con- conventional thinking is uh, an electoral shellacking, shall we say? For Rishi Shunak, isn't the clear incentive there? As annoying as she is, as much as he's going to get on his nerves to try to force a firing, why don't you just keep her close? Better to have your enemies close than far away so you can uh, control the damage and make it harder for her to make that argument? The Tories are in absolute freefall, right? And with her coming out, I think, as strongly as she did, I think the MPs are furious. They need any piece of good, positive reach across the aisle kind of stuff they can get. And Suella is not that at all. And I think she knows exactly what she's doing and I don't think it's helping. And I saw there's some poll out today that showed labor at 47%, which is just a crazy number if you followed labor polling recently. But I think the real interesting test is going to come next week. As Corey mentioned, one of the front benchers resigned his ministerial post. But next week, it looks like there is going to be a, a amendment to the King's speech where Britain is basically just calling for a general ceasefire. It was put forward by the SMP. And we know from Keir's early days that he does not tolerate dissent. He is he comes down with the hammer on people who step out of line. And I think it'll be very interesting to see if next week, if some of those Labour MPs vote for that amendment calling for the ceasefire how exactly he's going to react as light as suspending them for a few days to full out kicking them out of the party. It's going to be an interesting week for Labour, for sure. Historically, there has been a groundswell of support since the 1970s, at least, for left-leaning politicians throughout Europe. It's not even a British phenomenon throughout Europe to have support for the aims of Palestinian statehood. And whether it is France in the early 1980s that rec- recognises the PLO first as not being a terrorist organisation, being one which is legitimate. It's almost a reflexive part of left-leaning politics. 
I would have thought that considering the ongoing humanitarian disaster which is actually happening in Gaza, this would give Starmer cover to say things are getting worse. There needs to be uh, a pause for humanitarian aid. Then he can very easily then slip into talking about a ceasefire. You can step through this and then use as cover the growing tragedy. Now 10,000 lives have been lost. 10% of Gaza has been destroyed. You don't have to. Not that it was in great shape to begin with. No, it absolutely wasn't. It's one of the poorest places on the planet, which has the highest level of density uh, as well. So its human development index is incredibly low. But you can, as a politician, slide with events and say, no, my position is uh, only changing because I'm reacting to events, as opposed to I have changed my mind on this. And I've got a sneaky feeling that Starmer is going to be dragged to this conclusion because public opinion is changing. Doesn't forgive Hamas for the attack on October the 7th at all. But considering that many international lawyers, the UN, etc., are actually calling into question the legality of the Israeli bombardment, this has surely got to give him cover. Mike, did anything I just said there make any level of sense? I don't know. I think Kier is in a very tough position, and I think he's there through a combination of factors right now, and they're historical, right? So Kier, over the couple of years he's been in leadership, he's developed a reputation as being a flip-flopper. He tends to float with public opinion, or at least that's the reputation he's garnered. And then you still have the lingering shadow of Corbyn's anti-Semitism and the shudders, the earthquake-sized shudders that tore apart the Labour Party during their uh, anti-Semitic purge that that Keir led. I think if you didn't have those two components, I think it would be much easier for him to slide. I get the feeling he's just hoping that this will all self-resolve, that the two parties will call of something of their own accord. To be honest, again, if you asked me two weeks ago, what's the difference between a humanitarian pause and a ceasefire? I don't know that I'd be able to tell you. I think the same thing. So he doesn't have far to shift. I don't know that he will. And I think he'll just, he's just hoping that someone else calls for one of those actions first so he can then support that action. Number one, with people don't have water, it's pretty hard not to see that there's a humanitarian crisis which is actually happening. And if hospitals have dialysis machines just don't work so they don't have insulin that is a humanitarian crisis a full stop then it's not too many moves to then say we need to have a ceasefire the ceasefire fundamentally talks about the, the military operation and you could arguably say that the humanitarian crisis is too great and or Hamas don't have the c- capacity to fight back with a ceasefire, you can argue many other variables where the you know, humanitarian pause is humanitarian, but then you just slide into it. But anyway, what we do need to do, gentlemen, is, is to wrap up this podcast, a podcast of which I have not at all been on form, no witticisms from me at all, fumbled over two or three of my questions, asked a question which went round and round in circles and uh, where I ended up contradicted where I'd actually started. So I'm not on great form. 
But who has been on great form has actually been uh, Logan Phillips. Logan Phillips, why don't you tell people what you've been up to in the last seven days and where they can catch up with your work on the internet, sir? Yeah, I've been building up uh, on my election forecast at racetothewh.com, which I run. We're predicting the Senate and the House race. It just got a little bit of a shakeup now that Joe Manchin isn't running for re-election. So you can see how it looks there. It's still a really competitive cycle. Yeah, but that's been my main focus in that and building the presidential election forecast, which will be coming up in the months to come. M- Mr. Fisher, um, what have you been up to I- in the last seven days? Anything noteworthy, significant, or just which generally blow the minds of the listeners? I made an excellent land roast, mostly dominating my memories of the last week, if I'm being totally honest. Jeez, I don't have anything for you that fits in this at all, Royfield. How about, have you sufficiently recovered from your outrage of the VAR decision when Arsenal played Newcastle? I think one thing that can unite people on either side of the pond is that VAR is out of control. It's amazing that you can watch a video and get things so wrong consistently. I have to say, while I know many people will not take this well, American football has gotten VAR right, and the English Premier League has gotten VAR wrong. And I think there needs to be some kind of cultural exchange that perhaps Mid-Atlantic is the perfect cultural emissary for, because... The NFL does a very good job of doing review. And that goal by Newcastle against Arsenal should never have have stood. And the Rashford Red is now being called into question, although I give nothing to Man United. So that's what I have to say on the matter. I have very strong feelings, and I think that Mid-Atlantic, we should get together to fix this problem, and we're exactly the right people to do it. You know what? You're spot on. It's not often I advocate for us Brits learning from our transatlantic cousins. But a serious question. When, if if you even know the answer, because I don't know, when video technology became an integral part of the NFL, was there like a two, three year period where there were teething problems? Or did it just work first off? The answer to your question is yes. Yeah, there were definitely some problems to start. It took them a while to get it right. It's taken them a while to decide what should be reviewable or not reviewable. That said, the problems have generally had to do with this question of what is a catch, which is actually a substantially hard thing to define. And I understand that problem. In terms of actually getting something just completely wrong, for the most part, they've gotten it right when they've reviewed things. For the most part. Yes. Let's learn from the Americans when it comes to VAR. Mike, you t- you told us some exciting news just before we started. Do you want to relay that to the listeners? Are you a, a yeah, adventure? I, um, no, I have a much more personal growth to oh. reveal. Um, okay. Over the last couple of weeks, I have discovered that I am, in fact, a masochist. I've been watching... Not only the Republican debate last night, which I think at the end of which my brains were leaking out of my ears, but I've also been watching the COVID inquiry, countless hours of the COVID inquiry, to the point where the British accent, which I once thought sounded intelligent and refined, now just grates on my ears like a chalkboard. Yeah, it's been a rough couple weeks politically for me. 
So my good friend Cora Bernard in Manchester, what have you been up to in the last seven days? At least something which is suitably sanitised for our listeners. Anything I do is sanitised. But the last seven days, I've so I decided to enter the hallowed halls of academia once again. So I've started a new, I've gone back to university for some reason or the other. And the past seven days have been me teaching up on the first few weeks, which I've missed. So that's been fun. But that's pretty much it, to be honest. That's been taking up all of my time and attention. And what are you studying at uni? Law. Good heavens. Accelerated as well. So I'm doing it in two years instead of three. So that's fun. I, I take it you do that in Manchester? Um, no, but nearby. So not too much of a commute. You have my uh, best wishes, sir, that you will succeed in your academic endeavour and uh, come out the other side a proper brief, so to speak. Now, good people, by the time I've edited this, You'll say to yourself, this has been a a rather smooth uh, episode of Mid-Atlantic. I'll let you know, I have not been on top form. I got myself tongue-tied. My questions were flabby. They were pointless. But Mike, Aram, Corey and Logan were their wonderful, adroit and on-the-ball selves. They kept this whole podcast afloat whilst I floundered, I tell you. And if you noticed that I was not my not at par you can send me an email to that effect at royfield at gmail.com and say I noticed that you weren't your normal self Royfield but the panel did save you which is the reason why I have them also what you can do if you really do like this podcast if you want to keep supporting it is to go and leave a review on either Apple Podcasts or Spotify that is a great way of giving a thumbs up to our endeavour of fostering transatlantic dialogue And I think Aaron made a great point. We shouldn't just restrict this just to politics. We also should take it into the sporting realm. I believe that the English Premiership needs the experience, the wisdom of the American sporting environment, definitely when it comes to video technology. Take care. Look after yourselves. Bye-bye. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details.